We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. We are uh, going to be doing Midrash number four of, uh, of chapter 15, which is on page uh, three um, of the packet. Um, and uh, so you can see the, the, like, I don't know what that symbol is called, but that number four there, um, it's going to be on the words Vayasem Sham, uh, that, uh, that he placed him there. Um, but just to remind us of the verse that this comes from uh, is <clears throat> uh, well, still the, the verse that we've been talking about. Vayita uh, Adonai, yeah, I know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things about Midrash is that you might linger on one verse for a long time, um, but we're at least moving on to a new Midrash, so. Vayita Adonai Elohim gan ve'eden mikerem ve'yasem sham adam asher yatsar. So uh, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden uh, to the east or from before, as we talked about last week, maybe, maybe uh, signifying time rather than space. Vayasem sham et adam. So he placed there the man, Asher uh, Yatsar, that 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 he had, that God had created. Uh, okay. Um, why don't we? Let's see. I think we started the last. Uh, Norman, did you read last week? Sorry. Did you read last week? Yeah. You did. Would you like to read today? Sure. Rem- uh, tell me, so I'm so sorry. Tell me once again your name. Joe. Joe. Uh, all right. So you start there. Uh, the the midrash sites. The Midrash cites other interpretations of the word. Vayasem. Vayasem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi uh, Nechemiah. Uh, commented on the matter. Okay, so again we have, uh, like we saw earlier, um, a, 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 a conversation about the meaning of this verse. Um, this one... I'm trying to recall. This one is not actually a debate. Uh, so sometimes this happens in the Talmud that it'll, it'll bring up two rabbis who share the same opinion or maybe they were having a conversation together and they came up with this together. Um, so here you have Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nechemiah. Okay. Rabbi Yehuda said, God elevated Adam there in Gan Eden. Uh, as it is stated, you shall surely place over yourself a king. Rabbi Nechemiah said that God persuaded Adam to enter the garden and partake of the delights therein. It is analogous to the king who made a banquet and invited a special guest. Shall I I continue? Yeah, can you continue just the next line on the top of the next page? Uh, In a similar fashion, the Holy One, blessed be he, invited Adam to enter the garden. Okay, let's let's pause there. So what's... um, So I was actually... uh, uh, Speaking out of turn, um, uh, this might be a debate. Uh, it might be complementary points of view. Um, it might be um, uh, two points of view about the same verse that are not necessarily in conflict with each other, but are not necessarily building on one another. Um, so those are all uh, uh, questions that we can ask about this. But what? But just briefly, 
what are the two opinions that are offered here? What's, what does Rabbi Yehuda say about this verse? And what does Rabbi Nechemia say about this verse? Let's start with Rabbi Yehuda. So the verse is, God placed the man there. Ah, so, okay, so what's the difference between those two things? Well, on the one hand, I guess he gave Adam no choice, and the other hand, he did. Great, okay, so in one, right, one, Adam is literally plopped down, right? And the other is that, uh, that, that God, you know, said, please, I, you know, invite you to go in, and Adam chose to, to go in. Good, okay. Part where it says, mm-hmm. over yourself a king. Absolutely. So, what's the connection? Is he like a king to be there? He has position. Good. Okay. So, let's, so uh, I think that that's a, a a good read of it. Let's let's talk right there about what the what we would call the midrashic move, right? What is what is uh, what is Rabbi Yehuda uh, saying there? And, and I think the the first thing is trying to understand like what's the question that they have about the verse. The verse says, God placed the man there. So what's the question that Rabbi Yehuda has? Hmm? No, what's the question? What's the question that he has? What's, what, what question does he have about the meaning of that verse? Why did they use the word placed? Good, exactly, right? So what, let's think about that. What, what other words might the Torah have used? And you're, you know, let's say you're a, you're like a, a director, right? And you're blocking this scene, right? Uh, on the stage production, or you're making a movie about the Garden of Eden story. Like, how, what would you do with, with the, you know, the garden? Okay, we've, we've got the setting, right? We've made this, the garden set, right? And now I got to, like, put the main character there, right? What, like, how would you block that? So you would, you would literally pick your lead actor up and put him in or you would have or you would have you know whoever's playing god in the movie you, uh you, whatever charlton hessen right uh, uh morgan freeman right morgan freeman is going to come and he's going to pick up your who's your lead actor who's playing adam uh, morgan freeman is going to pick up uh bradley cooper and put him in the garden. that's how you're going to block it that's how, that's what you want to do it so no 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 that's not what Elah means. I'm just asking. I'm asking. The, I'm I'm trying to get at like what's the what's the question that they're asking? Right? The question they're asking is is um, why does the Torah use the word vayasem, right? That he, which literally means he placed, right? And and you know and and why is it why is it an unusual word to use, or a a, a curious word to use? Why did he just Right. Good. Right. Sorry. So that's another. Yeah, tell him to enter the garden. To go there, and he has, I guess, can walk. He doesn't have to walk. Yeah, right. Put objects in places, or if you're placed somewhere, like I think of that as being something like you're. 
placed in prison or you're placed in a school right. or you're yeah, yeah. You're pla- it's, it's not like we place children in school we don't say where would you like to go to school and give them an option we just say here's where you go and even parents don't often have a choice about like whose class they're in or what grade level they're in like there's a, there's a huge element of non-choice that mm-hmm. comes with placing something mm-hmm. good well, I was skipping over completely the little phrase, you shall place over yourself a king. Mm-hmm. Since there was nobody else around, where would you find a king? Ah, okay. So, so here's the, the function. Well, actually, before I answer that, does anybody want to want to give your thoughts about the, the function of that uh, verse that's brought in from Deuteronomy? Surprised. Well. Yeah, okay. Well, take it yeah, take it to Sabbath, Joe. Uh, that Adam is elevated over all things on earth, the animals, but over Adam is God, the sovereign God. Good. Okay. All right. So, good. Okay. So there's a there's a hierarchy that's uh, implied here, right? Um, so my uh, my sort of leading question is the the function of this verse is that it's a proof text. Okay, meaning that it's it's meant to. Uh, to, to show why Rabbi Yehuda's interpretation of Ayasem Sham, which is he elevated him, is the correct interpretation. And according to Rabbi Yehuda, uh, it's the correct interpretation because of what I actually noted this before, what the rabbis call Gzera Shava, which means that the same word is used uh, in the Torah in another place. And we're going to learn how we understand that term uh, the way it's used in Genesis by how it's used in the other place. In this case, it's Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, the word, uh, the word seem, right, to place, um, is used in the context of God uh, commanding the people uh, through Moses is the one speaking here, but Moses says that God says uh, that you should, uh, when you enter the land of Israel, you should, uh, you should uh, uh, establish a monarchy. You should make a king over, over yourselves. Right? And so the same word, same verb, seem, is used in that context as, as, as uh, establishing a, a king over yourself. Um, and so, so Rabbi Yehuda says, okay, now I know why it says vayasem, here, because there, Vayasem means to, to establish this hierarchy, right? To establish sovereign, uh, sovereignty. Uh, and that's what God is doing. That's what God, that's why must, you must be using this word Vayasem, which is kind of strange, right? Like, because, first of all, we think of human beings as independent agents and actors, right? So, um, so that, that, that it would, it would be, um, in some ways, very out of character, uh, seeing the way God interacts with human beings in the Bible, for the most part, for God literally to take you know our Bradley Cooper Adam uh, and uh, physically put him in the garden, right? So, um, so it must not mean that. It must mean something else. And so, what Rabbi Yehuda says is what it means is that God established Adam as the king of Garden of Eden. It's even more complicated. Go for it. If you look at the paragraph above, it says, For the Holy One, blessed be He, prepared my reward, even before I rose from the earth to labor in His commandments. Dust to dust. Uh, is, that, is that the idea? He made Adam out of the dust? Right. So He rose him from the dust and rose him from the dust to the garden. 
Yeah, so the, that I don't think that, I don't think that that's the connection there. Um, first of all, these are two different midrashim by two different rabbis, so they, they may not be connected at all, uh, just other than the proximity on the page. Um, but there, if we recall from last week, what that's talking about is um, uh, the, this sort of interplay between, uh, you know, what, first of all, what was created first, Adam or the garden, right? Uh, and, uh, and did, you know, we had this conversation about free will and about the divine determination, right? And so here the Midrash is saying that, uh, you know, Adam is praising God, right? God said, like, before I was even created, God created this, this beautiful garden for me to be in, right? So I didn't have to do anything to deserve it, Right, so we talked about like uh, preparing the nursery for a baby. Right, baby didn't do anything to deserve it yet. Right, but you have this like nice life set up for the baby before the baby's even born. Um, so yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, a, before I rose from the earth to labor, God already showed me uh, what like what you know. God already gave me uh, my prize. Right. Um, now this can be related, I think, uh, because uh, you know that uh, that that you know Adam didn't do anything to deserve being made you know ruler over everything else, right? Um, this is a this is a, a a profound statement I think about uh, that Rabbi Huda is making about the relationship uh, between humanity and the rest of creation. Which is reflected in some ways in uh, in, in Genesis, right? So, um, one second, we get a Bible. So you don't think the term elevated refers to raising him up from the earth, creating him from the earth? Uh, I don't. But I don't see why you couldn't interpret it that way. I think elevated here means um, like uh, um, like you made made him a ruler, made him you know elevated his position. Yeah, I think he's, he means like, like separating him from the rest of the animals. Right, right, right. Separated. Separated him. Good. Right. Uh, um, dis, dis, distinguished him. So does that mean Adam was created? Outside of the garden? Um, I mean, I guess I always thought he, I don't know, I guess I always just assumed he was created in the garden. Um, <laughs> if he has to get to the garden, then he's created outside of the garden, right? Right. So it, um, I'm not sure. I, like, it feels to me that Rabbi Yehuda is agnostic on that question, or he's not answering that question about who, you know, wh- whether, whether Adam was created in the garden or outside the garden. Um, uh, it, we haven't actually, uh, you know, it's unclear, right? The, the, the text of the Torah says um, uh, that um, uh, before the verse before the one that we're studying, it says that God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then, and then it says, and the Lord God planted a, a garden in Eden to the east, uh, and there he uh, put the man or placed the man whom he had formed. It sounds like he was formed outside. That, that is what it sounds like, although the, the Midrash we looked at last week sort of complicated that and said, actually, you know, Mikeda might mean that 
chronologically speaking, verse 8 should have come before verse 7, right? Um, and that happens sometimes. In the, the, I mean, actually, a classical example of that uh, is this week's Torah portion, Kitisa, uh, which is the story of the golden calf, or contains the story of the golden calf. And uh, rabbinic tradition, not, ever, not universally, but there's a thread of rabbinic tradition that says that that story actually chronologically should come before the instructions to build a, a tabernacle. Um, even though chronologically in the Torah, we read, like in the narrative of the Torah, we read the instruction for the tabernacle first. What? Having just spent time with that. Yes. It, it is confusing. And the, the, one of the reasons they say that is that, like, that that's, it's not an interruption in the tabernacle story. It's the, it's the motivation for the tabernacle issue, right? But, it, but um, uh, and they explain, you know, why, why is it, you know, then why is the instruction placed before that and whatever. Um, but the, the principle here is in Mukdam Melchar Torah that there's that the, there's no there's no there's no uh, earlier and later in the Torah which basically means there's no strict the Torah doesn't always follow a strict chronology right? so sometimes you know verse eight may have happened before verse seven um, uh, in which case. We still don't know whether Adam was created first and then put in the garden or invited into the garden. I think that Rabbi Nehemiah would say, who's the second opinion we read here, Rabbi Nehemiah would say about that question that, uh, that, that Adam was definitely created outside the Garden of Eden because he was invited to enter in, right? Rabbi Yehuda, I'm not sure. Maybe he was created in, maybe he was created out, but regardless of where he was created um, and in what order, what, what happens to him there is not that he's placed in the garden, it's that he's distinguished in the garden. He's elevated above the other animals. What I wanted to say about that is um, a few verses later. Um, so a few verses later, uh, um, uh, the Torah says this. Um, this is verse 15 of, of uh, Genesis chapter 2. V'ikach Adonai Elohim et adam uh, okay, so this actually talks about, um, uh, says something similar to our verse, but in a different language, which is interesting. God took the man, and he placed him in the Garden of Eden. So here, we have a more explicit verse that kind of says, okay, Morgan Freeman picked up Bradley Cooper and put him in Tahiti, right? Um, uh, Sorry, getting lost in my movie metaphor here, okay? Um, so that seems more literally. Um, and then it says, to, uh, to, to, to protect it, or to work it and to protect it. To, uh, in the translation here is to dress it and to keep it. You know, whatever. Um, uh, but then it also says, um, uh, da, 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 um, um, uh, sorry, verse, sorry, it's chapter one. Um, uh, chapter one says of uh, the human being when, when he's created. Um, yes, here it is, verse 28 of chapter one. Vayivarech otam Elohim. So God... Uh, blessed them. Um, interestingly, in chapter one, as I mentioned in our first session, um, it seems like man and woman were created simultaneously, whereas in chapter two, 
uh, it gives off the impression that man is created first and then woman is created after man. So here, Vayivarech Otam, God blessed them. Uh, Isn't it a more androgynous? Like, isn't Adam more like human rather than man as a male? I mean, isn't there sort of this notion that that both, like that, I mean, hermaphrodite isn't quite the right word, but that gender wasn't... Um, I realize I complicate that by saying that. <laughs> Most of the time I hear that is, right. Adam wasn't gendered. Right. So there are different ways of interpreting what Genesis 1 says about Adam, uh, or, or Genesis 2 for that matter. Genesis 1, though, says, um, uh, da, 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 let me actually find the actual verse. God created the, the Adam uh, in, in his image. Uh, in the image of God, did God create him? Zachar unekeva barautam. Male and female, God created them. Um, so the rabbinic tradition has different takes on it. One is that the original human being was neither male nor female, or both male and female, right? To have, you know, uh, so that you can look at that through the language of, of, of gender construction, right? That, that the, the original human being um, was... Had had both you know had both female and male identity could be a biological statement right that the first human being had both male and female uh, sexual organs um, some some rabbinic tradition says that the the first human being was sort of like a like like a two headed monster uh, or they might say that they were that was like male and female like Siamese twins like back to back and that the story in Genesis two of God taking the rib from Adam and making it a uh, a woman um, is actually the, the word uh, for rib there it's uh, tzela uh, can also mean like a, a side right so they say there that that what uh, what's happening is that God just like saws that original human being you know cuts the Siamese twins in half right and made them two distinct uh, creations, um, so it's it's unclear. Genesis one is uh, is is one of the, you know it's right. You, you have uh, I had uh, I was just at a conference this past week and um, uh, was had the uh, um, uh, the 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 great joy of uh, being taught by Rabbi David Ingber, who's a rabbi in, in New York at a place called Romamu, who's a wonderful rabbi, brilliant guy, and um, and he. He calls, he has like a theme song for this, okay? Which maybe we'll use in our class because I liked it so much. It's like, he calls that midrashic moment, right? So you see something like that, right? You see that in the Torah, right? Zachar midrashic moment. Because what does it mean? It doesn't mean, you know, it could mean a lot of things. Anyway, so God blessed them uh, and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And again, how does, how does like a you know, single male and female creature uh, become fruitful, multiply, and, and fill the earth. I don't know. The chiv shuha, right, and conquer it. Uredu bedgat hayam ve'of hashamayim v'chochayah haromeset al aretz. And rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all of the uh, life that, uh, that, that crawls upon the earth. Okay, so um, you have that statement about about humanity's, uh, uh, the, the, the original human being's function in creation, which is a, a function of, of, of dominion and rulership. Um, and, hold on one second. Uh, and then the other statement about um, uh, the, the function of the human being being placed in the Garden of Eden is to have responsibility for it, right? Um, you can see why 
uh, Rabbi Yehuda um, would make a midrash like this, right? He would say that, that, that you know what Vayasem Sham is a statement about uh, humanity's role and relationship to the rest of creation, and that role, that relationship, is one uh, is is a is um, is a, a power dynamic, right? That 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 that, that humanity's job is to be the king of all of creation or the sovereign of all of creation. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go. And then Norman. Yeah. Norman, you want to go first? I don't care. Yeah. Well, no, I was thinking, you know, uh, God created Adam, the Salmo, I mean, but God doesn't have a body. So when he's, when he's invisible, right? Yeah, yeah. So he created Adam without the body. But when he created the garden, he had to create the body for him. Uh, and then that very moment, Adam, who was exactly, he was both. Mm-hmm. You know, for the purpose of, re- of, of reproduction, he has to separate them. But he said in the, in the very beginning, God created Adam, Bethsalmo, in his image. Mm-hmm. And God has no image, because mm-hmm. he's invisible. Mm-hmm. So Adam was already there, but was not exactly visible. When he created the garden, he, made, he had to make him visible. And he made him on top of everything. Mm. Because simply, I mean, he's separated from the animal. He, uh, he's a like like elevate him from the rest of the mm-hmm. of his creation mm-hmm. to make him different. Because he was going to be the king of all all things, but on top of him, he was God's going to be on top of him. So, it's, I mean, that's that's a really uh, interesting take. I hadn't really ever uh, considered that the, the notion of uh, in chapter one of of Selem, right, God's image, uh, being a little bit more literally than we usually take it, right, which is uh, um, uh, which is that um, that uh, that God created a human being without any image, right, because God has no image, um, but needed then later to embody uh, that image, um, uh, which was. You know, a, a a compromise from the original vision or something like that, uh, because because you have this sort of embodied world that that uh, that required um, an, an embodied atom. Um, I I think it's a plausible uh, reading of it. Um, I, it's not the one I usually uh, uh, hold by. You know, what another, uh, but it is definitely interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Norman. Well, I don't think we've resolved the issue in paragraph four. Okay. Where Rabbi Yehuda says God, and I think what you read from the Bible was God placed Adam in the garden, and Nehemiah says that God persuaded him. Right. And then on the next page, invited him. Right. To enter the garden. So where, it, where did we get where did we get that idea that it was a, optional? Right. So so that's a good argument to make against Rabbi Nehemiah. Right or to you know if we if we could bring Rabbi Nechemia here and say you know how could you say that because in verse you know whatever it is fifteen or sixteen uh, it says that God picked him up and put him there right and you're not saying that you're saying God invited him in yeah but for for example if Adam was he was created you know in the image of God and but God is invisible he was part of God and then when, when God when God God decided to put him there first he separated him from him and naturally. He's putting him there, separating from him, or he's inviting him into his garden. So are you saying that those are the same thing, to, to invite Adam into the garden and to physically place him there, or no, the same thing? Put, he put, put him, you know, he put him by. He was not exactly asking Adam. 
Ich will es tun. Ich weiß nicht, wer. Aber wenn er ihn bei ihm ist, ist I mean, listen, there's, uh, you know, the, the implication of choice here um, is maybe it's possible to overstate it, right? Because Rabbi Nehemiah says that, you know, uh, so it says God persuaded Adam. But the, the analogy is of a king that made a banquet and invited a guest, okay? If the king makes a banquet and, you know, like King Michael invites you and says, says, I'd love for you to come to my banquet. How much choice do you have to refuse the invitation? Zero. I would say close to zero. I mean, you could do it, and then I would probably chop your head off in rage, right? Unless I was a very benevolent king, in which case I might put you in the dungeon. But, um, right? So, so the, 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 uh, we might be overstating Rabbi Nehemiah's sense of, of Adam's choice there. You know, like this notion that a sort of foreboding of not being worthy, like a foreboding. Because of, he already knew that he was going to be separated from the deity, he was going to be more exposed to making failure, to, to fail. Right. But being part of God, being his image, he, he was fine, he was protected. Once he was separated, then he was going to fail. And then he was going to give Kind of like, a, like when a kid learns to walk. Yes. You have to be willing to let go as a parent because you have to let them fall because the only way a kid learns to walk is to right. fall down a gazillion times before they figure out how to stand on their own two feet. You know, but Adam may have been like, hey, I kind of like this carrying thing. Let's just go with that. You know, like, I'm good. Like, and there are kids who are reluctant to walk for that reason. It's like, well, why should I fall if you'll carry me around all the time? And, right. I mean, if we're going to take the nursery analogy, we can... But the beautiful thing is, but the, the, the beautiful thing is that you know God has created the idea of Adam, even in His image, but he, he was already separated from the rest. The idea that you know He, God, He had already the idea of Adam, right. He was invisible, but He already had it separated from the whole creation, for, for a purpose. How do you know that? When well, He said there in, in, in the Torah, no. Right. So, right. So, in chapter one, it does say, right, that 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 Adam is going to have a function of 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 dominion over the rest of creation. Um, I do want to talk about that for a second. I want to talk about what that what that means. But I can but I can see what we're what we're saying here, and I think that that actually can be true for both Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nehemiah's um, opinion on this subject. That. You know, like if if you get invited to a king's banquet, you might be reluctant to go because you know, like, what if I spill something on myself, or like, what if I like break a vase or something like that? You know, um, uh, I, what's that? I said the right clothes. Right, wearing the right clothes. You know, yeah, absolutely. Right, and um, and then and and the other, you know, if if we, you know, Rabbi Yehuda's position that uh, that that. Um, Adam is sort of elevated in status uh, in the Garden of Eden. Um, I also could see Adam being reluctant about that, right? Like, you know, there's, you know, there's there's a there's an allure of having uh, power, right? But there's also the recognition that I mean, we we hope 
among people who are in power, but it doesn't always happen. But the recognition among power, uh, with, with power uh, comes responsibility. Right? And so, like, Adam might think to himself, like, like, it's, like, so much, like, you know, he's, like, just sort of, like, we don't know how much time has elapsed since he was created before God says, okay, now I'm going to make you the king over this garden here, right? Um, or, or queen or whatever. And... Um, and Adam says, "Actually, I'm I'm kind of cool out here. Like, I, you know, I have no responsibility. I'm, you know, I'm 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 just you know frolicking among gazelles, and uh, you know, it's 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 better like that, um, right? And and I think that that insights, you know, that's that's down here of you know the the, the you know the intuition that he wouldn't fare well. I I I don't know if I would go that." Far just because I have no indication that that that's actually true of Adam that he's he's got an intuition that he may not fare well, but I can imagine the fear, right? That uh, um, that that I'm you know um, that I'm being being invited to this you know like special this special place that God has created, and what if I do screw it up, you know? Uh, or or you know I'm being invited to this position of authority, and what if I what if I cause more harm than good? Yeah, well, that's all outlined under insights. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just saying that I think that, like, you know, an intuition that he would not fare well feels to me a little bit of of an overstatement. Um, I have no real, and I'm not going to argue with the Kutzker Rebbe, um, but, uh, um, uh, but, but, I'm, but I might say, you know, I don't see any textual indication that Adam had that kind of intuition. Um, um, but I can, but I can certainly, whether it's intuition or whether it's just anxiety, right? I, I mean, maybe it's because I, I have anxiety myself, but like, I, I can understand that, right? That uh, being in a place of, uh, of, of anxiousness. Um, you know what? But I think the impression that you know, Adam was fine until, until he was separated. That Adam was fine until he was separated. Separated from God or separated? Genders. Apparently he was fine, quotation marks. But then, you know, God, he, he thought he was by himself lonely. And he had a body and he was the one to make babies. So he separated him. And then we have Eva. Eva or Eva or Eva. Eva. And, you know, and then Eva, and she already knew that they weren't supposed to eat from that tree. But then she was present to it. That very moment, you know, she did it, and they opened their eyes. Then they, they had needs. They, the needs appeared, and they, they, yeah. they come in conflict with what they created. Right. For example, they, because they found, they found themselves they are naked. So they, they, then they found that they have needs. Yeah. Before they didn't have that problem. Right. So, first of all, the, the, my, where my, what that made me think of is... Um, is, is um, Buddhist tradition, you know, that talks about the the um, you know the um, the essence of the essence of life is suffering, and the reason for suffering is is desire. Right, we, like we would just like want things that we don't have, right? Um, and desire is rooted in separation, right? I like I don't have all that I need, right? And so um, and so the things that I need are outside of me, right? Um, and so I think that there is a dynamic here of, you know, the, the, you know, the heart of humanity's problems um, is separation, separation from each other, separation from God, right? And, uh, and uh, um, I think that that's a, that's a really uh, um, 
interesting take on the story, a deep take on the story, right? That now it turns out, you know, so then you have to ask yourself, okay, then why did God do it, right? Why did God separate humanity from, from, the, from the oneness of God? Why did God create a separate being? And then why did God create two beings out of that separate being? You know, um, what was God's objective in doing? Did God just make a mistake? Was it, was it all a mistake? first human maybe it's like back to back or whatever so it's a separation into what if they weren't aware that the other was there like they didn't experience like they weren't they weren't aware of the union they weren't aware that they were more than one there was just because oneness can also be this like mush i mean one oneness can be like like a lot of times, like in race theory and other anti-oppression mm-hmm. work, right. we talk about that the problem with the melting pot analogy right. is that everyone comes out to be this like sticky goo, right. goo yeah. that right. no one wants. Like, right. um, if you ever go back and watch Schoolhouse Rock and you watch the Great American Melting Pot, it's horrible. They come out white. Like literally, if you Ooh. watch it and go back, like people who go in, they come out white when they come up from the pot. Hmm. So, if oneness is kind of this, also that. There's a lack of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Maybe at, maybe the creature isn't even aware that the creature is of two. So the creature experiences one kind of loneliness of not being aware that there that there's another there with them, and then it's different when but when they're separated, <clears throat> there's both this like acknowledgement of oh there was more to me than I thought, but also oh there's there's it's my complete. companion yeah, you know like like not like. Oh, I, and I can be differentiated. Like, okay. there's value in differentiation. Right. There's value in plurality and more than one. And you know, so is God fixed? If God is all, if God is one, which is we, we all affirm, because God is one, then human humanity has to be more than one, but still in God's image. I mean, in some ways, like the diversity of humanity is some of the what might get lost in God's oneness. I don't know. I don't know whether I feel yeah. about that or not, but that's where it went, so I just like let it go. Uh, no, I think that that's a that's that's a beautiful insight, uh, and it reminds me of a few uh, a few pieces of tradition that that are that I think are worth sharing. You know, the, so one thought uh, is that um, uh, Rabbi Art Green uh, in his uh, his great book Seek My Face, which is his uh, you know sort of postmodern Jewish theology. He says that the reality, the reality of, uh, of, of one requires the presence of an other. So you actually can't have one without having an other to testify and relate to that reality of oneness. So, the, so there's certain inevitability in, right? it's like God didn't really have a choice in creating, God, I mean, if God had stayed in the like, singularity of Godness, there would actually be no God. Right? So God needed to create d- division and distinction in order, f- in order to, k- to actually exist. So that's one piece of it, of like, you know, why would God do this in the first place? The second is, um, and this is like a, kind of like a modern um, in, in take on a Hasidic, um, I think it's the Baal Shem Tov, who says that nothing became something so that something might become nothing. 
In other words, we were created in order to, uh, to make the deliberate choice of, of, of reuniting, reuniting with each other and reuniting with God, which is better than uh, never having had that choice in the first place. Right? So it gives the risk that we would fail in that choice and it gives all the anxiety of, of, uh, of, of being separate and, and, you know, and, and of, of that kind of suffering. But, um, but, the, but the, um, the objective is better than, uh, than, than what would have existed if we, if, if we weren't um, uh, separated, if we didn't become something from nothing. That's, that's two. Three... Uh, this was taught to me by another participant in the conference I was at this week, which is a, 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 another, it's another Hasidic teaching. I can't remember if he even quoted who it came from, but that was beautiful. So the, the notion, and this is this, one of the things I love about uh, Kabbalah and Hasidut, is that um, it, uh, even, it, it anticipates, that may be too strong, um, it, it, it harmonizes with, with our modern scientific understanding of how the universe came into being, right? Which is that the universe started out as a singularity, right? It was a you know, single point of light, right? That exploded into diversity. Um, and uh, and so, um, uh, so the universe started in that oneness, exploded into diversity. The objective is not necessarily to get back to that singularity, but it is to uh, bring ourselves and everything else into harmony, into alignment with one another. So in other words, to cre- it's, like, it's the, it's the counter-argument to the melting pot, right? So that, that, that our objective isn't to jump into the melting pot and get like, you know, u- universal goo again, right? It's to maintain our identity but have that, indiv- that, that individuality, that distinctiveness uh, be in alignment and in harmony and in, in peace with everything else that, that is. What? Is it possible? I think the Jewish tradition argues that it is. Um, right, so I guess I would say about that, that that's why, that's why the tradition puts that... Right. So I think that that's, the tradition puts that in, in, in messianic language, right? Right? On that day, God will be one and God's name will be one. Right? It, on that day, it'll happen eventually. When that happens, you know, maybe everything will stop being. Right? But, uh, but if we kind of think of it as like uh, an asymptote right? you can, or a horizon, right? you can always kind of get closer to it, but you may not get there. Right? Then we can get closer to a reality where, where we, we're in harmony with each other. Um, so that's just another kind of perspective about, about it. There's one other thing. Give me one second. Let me. Um, oh, he was also talking about like how, you know, how uh, he was talking about the Shema and it was like a musical person. And he's like, you know, I always struggled because I like harmony, but I always uh, um, struggle with singing the Shema with the word Echad at the end and like not wanting to harmonize at Echad because that um, contradicts the meaning of the, like, maybe we should be in unison at, at Echad and not doing harmony. And he heard this teaching for this Hasidic teaching that actually the, the objective shouldn't be unison, right? It should be harmony. Right, which is that we're not going to like merge into the same thing. We're going to uh, we're going to be our distinct selves, but be such a version of our distinct selves that um, that 
is is balanced and re, in, you know interconnected, interwoven with uh, uh, not in dissonance with the rest of of creation. So I thought that that was um, that was really beautiful. Yeah. Because it, because that makes it make more sense that if we're if we're if we go from nothingness to something and then choosing to be nothing again, but what you're choosing is to choose harmony or to choose that. Um, sometimes when I am when we live. When we have those moments of being in touch with our most authentic selves and we're at our most grounded, our most in touch, there's a sense that we're nothing, but we're also a sense of being connected to everything. Like, whatever you're doing in that moment is a sense of, like, I feel the most alive at that moment. Like, when I, I love to teach, I teach, and there are, I'll have moments in the classroom where I'll just feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do in the moment I'm supposed to be doing it. And it's both a moment of I'm not there and I'm there all right. at the same yeah. time, like yeah. at its best. Yeah. Um, you repeat what you said. Nothing became something, so that something might become nothing. Um, so let me just uh, uh, just. I got a problem with that. <laughs> yeah. That God had to create the universe to affirm His own existence. I think God could have existed without all that. Then how then then how would how would in, how would anybody um, so if something exists is if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it does it make a sound? Well, the answer is no. By the way, that actually has an answer because sound is a function of relationship, right? Uh, um, so. Uh, 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 it might, it might, you know, it might make vibrations, right? But those wouldn't be experienced as sound, right? So that's the, that's the, um, that's, I think, the answer to the question about, you know, um, did God need to have a creation in order to be God? I, I think, now, it might be challenging w- w- with, with what we think about the nature of God, right? Is that, is that, you know, egocentric of God to, you know, to, to want that, right? So there's another way of looking at it, I think. I'll get that in a second. But, but the, 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 the fact of the matter is that, no, God couldn't have been God without, without a creation. But the, the, the second thing I would say about the, – so the other thing I would say about it is that I, you can look at it as egocentric. You could also look at it as compassionate, as loving, right? Um, that um, I am a um, – a, a, um, I am a profoundly better version of me having brought life into the world than I was without having brought life into the world. Um, uh, and yet, um, I'm actually diminished by having done that. Like, there's plenty of good reasons why I should never have had kids, right? Um, why any of us should never have had kids. Don't tell my kids I said this because I love them, right? Um, but, you know, I could, like, I, listen, you know, like, before I had kids, like, this is me deciding I want to get out of the house and go to the movies. Right? And now, right? So, right, right. So it's very different now, right? So, um, yeah, right. So, um, well, so listen, I, I mean, you'd have to ask Dylan Roof's parents that. What I imagine that they would say 
is that they are incredibly embarrassed and disappointed um, and pained by the by the by what their child had done, um, but he's still their child and they still love him. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and, and then if you ask them, knowing what you know now about what he would do, would you have had him anyway? I'm not so sure that their answer would be no. That's an imponderable Right? Um, but we, we all have children with that, you know, who, those of us who have children, you know, not knowing how it's going to turn out for them. Right? And we... You know, it's like the, the great risk, right? Uh, but, um, but we do it because we have love to give. So I don't know. That's just another way of thinking about like, why God engages in the act of creation. The other thing I wanted to say, just sort of, which I think builds on, on what you're saying, is um, uh, two aspects of diversity in relationship to God. The first is that um, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, chapter, chapter 4, um, says that um, that uh, the diversity of life, the human diversity, um, testifies to the greatness of God. Uh, because a flesh and blood king, uh, when, when he mints a coin, he has a mold and mints a coin, and all the coins come out the same way. But God minted a coin in the first human beings, and yet no two human beings, well, except for maybe identical twins, but basically, you get the idea. No two human beings look alike, right? And the fact that God can, you know, out of a singularity, right? We, sh- we should theoretically not be diverse at all, right? The existence of diversity is like, is an incredible miracle, right? Um, uh, now, I get it, right? The miracle is a subjective term. I, mean, I'm, I believe in, in Darwinian evolution and all that, right? But, but the fact of diversity is an incredible miracle. Like, no, the, scientists don't understand, don't know, like, why diversity happens, right? They understand how diversity sort of evolves, right? But they don't understand how, why it happens. You know, what, what, why, why, you know, what accounts for, for uh, random mutations? And how do random mutations end? So th- these are all open questions in science. So, the, so anyway, that's, it's, it's, it's just baffling that there's, that there's diversity. Well, so my mother's an identical twin, so I've gotten to see this up close. And it is interesting that Theoretically, they should be identical, right? You, you should not be able to distinguish right, them. Right, Except that their lives and who they are are very distinct, um, despite that they are incredibly bonded. Like, bonded in a way that, like, I see very few other human beings bonded. Like, right. I don't expect one to live long without the other. And, and yet, yes, if I showed you a picture, you'd look at them and you'd say, clearly twins, right? Because they look so much alike. Although other times I've had people look at them and they're like, I don't get it. Like I had an eight-year-old look at the picture of the two of them and the eight-year-old was kind of like, they look different. Right. And, and so even in that identicalness mm-hmm. of DNA, right. they are distinct. Right. Um, the other, the other thing I'll say is, you know, the, it's, which is sort of a, a, another take on, uh, humanity being created in God's image is that no individual human is, is a, a reflection of God's image, but all of humanity in its totality create in, in all of its diversity, both in its totality in, in the, in, in the physical, in the, in the now and its totality in, in history and in the future, right? That's God's image. Right. So, um, uh, and another way of thinking about it is, uh, so, you know, the, uh, 
Abraham Joshua Heschel talks about the, you know, the commandment uh, not to create a, a graven image of God. Um, and, um, and, uh, and so, you know, the, often we sort of interpret that as, you know, because God doesn't have an image, we shouldn't try to thingify God, right? God is more than just the image that we would create of him. And if we create uh, an image to reflect, uh, to, to, to embody God, it would, uh, it would not be God. So that's one take on it. Another take on it is the reason you know, it's not that God doesn't have an image and that's why we can't create an idol, right? It's because you're God's image, right? And all of us are God's image, right? And so, and so we don't create God's image because our, our life is meant to be a, an embodiment of the divine. But no physical image. I understand. Well, I don't, I don't know. Why no, not physically? That, that is, God, God's image is invisible. That's the one that, you know, is really... So, I'm, I'm not sure if you're right about that. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that God... You're God's image. Yeah. Yeah, so, I you're physical. I don't think he looks like me, hopefully. I mean... Uh, well, so, then what I, what I would say is that, that, that God... Sure, God... I, I, why not? God looks like you, and God looks like you, and God looks like you. Wow. So, you're not talking about the physical representation. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm talking about... I'm talking about um, I, I am talking about a physical representation. I'm just talking about not one that is limited to you. Here's another take on the God's image thing. Another thing I learned this week that I loved. Um, so and, and it was a really great conference. Uh, and, and the truth is, the truth is, it's like it was one of the, be- one of the best conferences I've ever been to because it was um, like pretty uh, egalitarian and democratic. Like it was you know, rabbis and cantors, but also people from like all walks of life. There were, there were, there were kids there and teens, uh, Jewish educators, um, uh, people who just like are passionate about Judaism who wanted to be there. It's just a great, great experience. Anyway, it's called Song Leader Boot Camp. Next year you can come with me to St. Louis. We could all go. So, but, um, uh, so this was uh, Cantor Ellen Dreskin who I don't know where she is now, but uh, I know that she's originally from Texas because that was like part of her story. But she said, um, you know, God's name is usually represented uh, um, in, in rabbinic tradition by the letter Aleph. And now we use the letter He for Hashem. Sometimes Yud is, some, is a representation of God's name, but the letter Aleph. Um, and uh, one of the reasons God's name is represented by the letter Aleph is because Aleph has within it um, uh, uh, all the letters of God's name. It has two, if you think about it, it you know, it, it's got two Yuds um, and a Vav, right? And, uh, and a Yud is uh, divisible into two He's. So you have Yud, He, Vav, He in the letter Aleph. Um, and, she, and she said, you know, it says, you know, we're created in God's image. Well, how is that? Because we have an Aleph, all of us, stamped onto our face. We have two Yuds and a Vav. Right? So we actually have God's, uh, God etched on, in, onto us. So that was just a gorgeous uh, uh, teaching. Um, okay. Uh, you guys want to take another couple of minutes since we started a little bit late? We'll finish this, this, uh, this Midrash. All right, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, so we're on the next page four now. <clears throat> so the so uh, so the verse was vayasem vayasem uh, um, sorry let me skip the verse vayasem sham vayasem sham et adam okay he placed he placed there the man okay so the man 
in the merit of Abraham, as it is written, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my counsel from afar. That is, you knew from the outset during that the duration of my sitting in the Garden of Eden and my rising up, i.e. my being expelled from the Garden. Nevertheless, you did kindness with me in creating me and settling me there initially, for you understand my counsel from afar. That is, in which merit did you take counsel to create me? Right, so this is, I think, goes back to the conversation, you know, like, like, uh, you know, recognizing that our children, you know, might grow to be imperfect and, and fail, right? Uh, what gives us the idea to create them in the first place, right? And God being able to see into the future and recognizing that Adam was, was likely to fail in the Garden of Eden, right? Why did God bother doing it, right? Okay, so why did you do it? In the merit of that one who came from afar, which the Midrash understands to be Abraham, Right? Because Abraham is a person who, who comes from afar, right? So comes from uh, Orkastim, from Mesopotamia, and we, and we say, Lech lecha, me'artzecha, go forth from your land, Ela'artzesha'areka, uh, to the land that I will show you. Um, it is this that is written, I have summoned the eagle from the east, from a distant land. He is the man of my counsel. So without getting too bogged down in, in the, like, you know, this sort of a... Um, compositionally complicated midrash. The internal logic of it is, is a little bit um, uh, uh, winding. Um, but the essence of it is, um, if, God, right, um, if God knew what was going to happen to Adam, then why did God bother creating Adam? And the answer is, because of Abraham. God created Adam because he knew that one day the descendant of Adam would be Abraham. What do you think about that? Well, I have to admit ignorance. I'm not sure when the flood happened. After, after Adam, before Abraham. So how is it? Adam, a precursor of Abraham. Well, everybody died except Noah. Yeah, and Paul and a descendant of Noah, right? Yeah, but who was Noah a descendant of? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. right? Um, you know now now you know, how how is how is this you know if we, if we think of all 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 midrashim. As being um, um, a what's it called uh, a, a interpretation of, of you know a very close reading of a verse, it's a little bit more challenging until you look at the commentary, the notes down here that uh, says um, uh, the midrash expounds the word haadam, the man, as an allusion to the merit of Abraham, who is called haadam hagadoba anakim, um, the greatest man among the giants. Right, so. Um, uh, so, uh, so that's that's apparently where this midrash, like that's the midrashic move, is ha'adam. Um, uh, now, you know, again, like, it's hard to know, the, you know, what, what's the midrashic motivation here? There's not exactly a question of like what you know, God placed ha'adam. Maybe you could have said vayasem Hashem et adam be 
Vayasem Sham et et Adam Asher Yatsar. Right? So he placed there Adam, who he created, not the Adam. Right? So maybe the Midrashic moment is why does it use Ha Adam there, right? Okay. So in the and the Midrashic move is to say, it's again, Gezer Shava, right? So in another place, Ha'adam refers to Abraham. So here, Ha'adam must refer to Abraham. And God placed then, according to the Midrash, Adam in the Garden of Eden um, because of the merit of Abraham who would come from him. So any, any thoughts about this Midrash? Yeah. Another way to think about it is that God, even if God knew, you know, God knew Adam was going to mess it up, but um, God had enough hope that someone else could come along and and repair it, or could come along and do better than Adam did, or uh, maybe hope in our ability to learn and evolve and become better people. You know, is there is, is a way to look at that as God continued to have hope, even knowing that that maybe Adam was going to get it wrong. But along the way, there would be those who got it right. Great, I love that. Right, that uh, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, put Adam there, not because not because I I'm convinced that uh, he's going to do the right thing, but that sometime uh, down the line, one of his descendants is. Um, what also I love about this is that you know. Especially according to the rabbis, right? Uh, Abraham, uh, rabbinic reading of the Torah, which I think is a fair one, is that uh, is that Abraham is um, the progenitor of all of the Jewish people, right? And so Abraham uh, is the um, uh, is the um, uh, the 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 origin, right? Anything that's relating to Abraham and Abraham's mission and Abraham's accomplishments is also a reflection on us. Right, so actually, I think that the rabbis here aren't so concerned about Abraham per se. Remember, they say that you know um, God placed the original uh, human being in the Garden of Eden, knowing that that person would fail, because God wants us, Abraham and Abraham's descendants, to repair what Adam broke, to do a better job, right? To to restore Eden, which is. If you remember the first week, we talked about the connections between um, between the tabernacle, between the, the the temple and the Garden of Eden, right? That the that the temple was at least a reflection or a representation of the Garden of Eden, right? Um, you know, so the, you know the the central task of um, of the of the it's the heart of the Torah, right? Is is building of the tabernacle. Right? The work of the Jewish people is to build a, a, a dwelling place for the divine. Right? And then you would say, okay, so, and what's the, what's, what do we think of the Messianic era? Like, what's the, what does that mean? Right? The Messianic era will be represented by another temple. Right? I think that, this, that, that's, that to me is kind of metaphorical language. What we're saying is that the, the objective, what, what Jews are charged to do, is, um, is, is, uh, is get back to God. Right? And get the world back to God. Get humanity back to God. Right. That is another way of putting it. Right? We're tikkun olam. We're repairing the world. Right? Um, 
Right? The, you know, there, there was there was a rupture in creation uh, when you know with the first human being, right? And uh, and and our job is to repair that rupture.